lonely, to besmirch, cat-like, vulnerable, foul-mouthed, worn out, well-read, distasteful, bedroom, shooting star, distrustful, countless, downstairs, upstairs, outbreak. On today's episode, we kick off by talking about the various hills that we're willing to die on before getting into the main discussion of The World as a Stage, a book about Shakespeare by Bill Bryson. Hello and welcometh to The Culture Quest. We art but humble adventurers, and at the present day, we did learneth all yonder is to knoweth about William Shakespeare, while learning wherefore all yond we've learned is happily not true. With me at each moment, Art Peter. Hello. <laughs> and Barrio. Hello. And I am Inon. Thanketh thee, the harkers at home, for taking parteth in our noble quest. This is so cultured. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sensing a theme. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I literally googled an English Shakespeare dictionary and just clicked the first link. Oh, wow. Uh, today, we're discussing Bill Bryson's book, Shakespeare, The World as Stage, which is uh, clearly uh, a Shakespeare biography, which came out in 2007. It's time we, we found out a thing or two about the man known as the greatest playwright in history. But before we get into all of that, guys, Tavern Talk. Do-do-do-do. Today for Tavern Talk, we're discussing the age-old question. What hill are you willing to die on? That is, what is an opinion you have that you will never agree to compromise over? Who wants to go first? Are any of yours like super controversial or is it um, more low level? Mm, I think mine is more, is simpler. I'd say mine is a 6 out of 10. Okay, I'll go first. I'll go first. <laughs> yeah, go for it. Okay. Um, I was kind of thinking about what, obviously like, there's some hills that everyone's willing to die on, but like, I wanted to think of something that specifically me, I have like a, a thing about. And what I thought of was I always like, like I hate drinks that have like one or two ice, ice blocks in them. Cause I figure like, what's the point, you know, so <laughs> I, my hill that I want to die on is that money aside, I think more ice blocks is generally better. You mean like ice cubes? Oh, yeah. We call them ice blocks. Really? Really? Yeah. You call them ice boxes? No, no, but blocks. Ice blocks? Ice blocks. Yeah. Okay. It took me a while to, to understand what you're talking about. <laughs> I was imagining literally like blocks of ice. <laughs> like in the movie Frozen. Yeah. Well, that's what they are. So. Uh, well, in the movie Frozen, in, in the beginning of Frozen, they're like carving out blocks of ice and they're like bigger than their like torsos. Uh, yeah. That's what I was imagining mm-hmm. in your drink. <laughs> I think a lot of people, which is correct, but they say if they have more ice, then they get less drink, 
right? So for me personally, like having the drink with less ice is just like not worth having the drink in the first place. But I'm not willing to die on that hill because I can understand some people like will just drink it quickly or something like that, right? Yeah. But I think money aside, so you can buy as many as you want, but what's your desired level of ice on those drinks? I would have to say like more ice is generally better. As long as like it's not full up with ice so you can only pour like a shot yeah. of your drink in. Because that happens every once in a while. That does, that does happen. But like as long as you can get like still a little bit of liquid in there, I would say more ice is always better. I think it's a bit radical to say the you know the more ice blocks that you have the, the better. Like I I I like ice in my drink and I completely agree with you that there are some drinks that lack a lot if you don't have ice in them. For example, you know getting a cup of uh coke in the cinema. I always mm. liked it because I think that coke is a bit too sweet and the ice not only chills it but Like dilutes it to, to the perfect amount of sweetness. Yeah. I just love it. Yeah, yeah, me, me too. So I, I do agree on that. But there is a point where it's a bit too much, especially quantity-wise, like what you said, that when half the cup that you get is, is ice. That's it's, true. It's a bummer. That's true. But I'm assuming like, I'm trying to like say ceteris paribus on the quantity aspect. So like you yeah. can just have two cups instead of one. Yeah. I'll put like a um, boilerplate exception to things like whiskey where some people like just one ice block or something like that like i think that's like an exception where ice is like kind of more part of the drink i guess you could say but in the in my scope is sort of like coke like soft drinks yeah um pretty much like any sort of like frozen drink where it's ice which isn't crushed and um bubble tea yeah counterintuitively right the more ice you have the less it melts So, like, this is, a, this is a sign of a bad drink for me, right? When the ice is, like, free-floating. Yeah. Because if you have, like, 10 blocks of ice, then it's, like, it's all at the bottom and it's sort of like a... It's, like, at the bottom of a fish tank and it's not going anywhere, right? You can, like, shake it around. But when, like, the ice is just floating in the drink, like, you know, like a boat, then they're just dead in the water, literally. Like, yeah. it's just... They don't have enough almost, like body heat but almost like the opposite they don't have enough like coolness together to like you know keep the drink cold and also like still stay in form yeah yeah i've seen people like asking for less ice because they want more of the drink and i'm i'm with you i'm against that mm. maybe if you're like 12 years old or something like that yeah. and that that extra coke <laughs> is gonna get you through the school week but i think for like if you're making a drink at home or something like that where you have like control of it then just I think there's no reason not to yeah. like fill up with ice. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, actually, yeah, now, now that you mention it, I do. That's, that's what I do at home. But let me ask you this. How, how do you drink your whiskey uh, in terms of ice? Do you drink it with ice? Uh, one cube of ice, no ice at all? Um, A few drops of like spring water? <laughs> either no ice at all or one, one very small cube. Uh, no ice at all, no water. Yeah, I, I drink it neat. Sometimes... A small cube of ice, like Barrio mentions, but mostly neat. I went to some whiskey tasting a couple of months ago and and did you ever did you ever had some some whiskey out of the barrel? No, never mm. it's It's like incredibly concentrated, very high percentages of of alcohol. It's kind of like around seventy, maybe wow. maybe more really yeah and and we got like tastes directly from the barrel, and it looked like blasphemy because she she took kind of like a a cupful out of it. And then she pretty much mixed it with 
with water. Oh, it's, no. It's, <laughs> at the beginning, I was like, no. But actually, <laughs> it became great. Like, it probably was unbearable drinking yeah, it. Yeah, you have to dilute it just a bit. And, and then she, she also explained to us that it kind of opens the tastes because if it's too concentrated, you can't really feel anything. And we actually had a session later where you got a low bowl full, full of whiskey. And then you just, we got this... Uh, turkey pasters but you know small ones yeah. and just three little drops and it does it kind of like changes the the actual aroma and it does something good and a drop of like a cube of ice is probably a bit more than th- three drops well depends <laughs> how much how much time you you actually take in drinking it but it probably like at least at the beginning does something yeah. similar i heard you can literally order like spring water bottles very small bottles of spring water from scotland and you're like supposed to drip a couple of drops into the whiskey. And they're like, you know, from the same springs that water was taken to use to, to, to make the whiskey itself. So it's Ooh. supposed to be really great. But I don't know. On, on a similar note, I just want to say that, like, I think about 10 years ago, a friend gave me like those granite stones, yeah. like granite cubes that you put in, on the, in the freezer. They maintain the cold and yeah. they absorb heat. So like when you get them really cold and then you put it inside your drink gets it cool really fast but it doesn't dilute it so yeah that's another cool uh, way to go I, I wouldn't say it's the not the worst hill to die on mm, i'd agree i have actually a stronger or more of a um steep hill but maybe we'll get to it but what about you well i have a really bad problem with littering and i keep finding myself you know even if i'm in the middle of nowhere just going with trash in my pockets just yeah. you know until I, i'll find a regular trash can and whenever i see someone you know maybe just drops a cigarette butt or just you know throws something in the street like i'm <laughs> like obviously i am I'm, I'm too too much of a coward to do anything about it but sometimes i actually pick it up but i just want to kill that person it's right you vent about it on your podcast <laughs> <laughs> It gets all the way through. It's it's it annoys it annoys. Let it annoy- out, Let everything out. It annoys me in such a deep <laughs> level that I actually, you know, I created this theory in my mind that a person who uncaringly litters, he's probably a bad person. Yeah, like that's probably not true. <laughs> I can completely realize that. But in my head, if someone litters but just throws it without thinking twice. Like, this is a person who doesn't care They're about... They're canceled. Yeah, I, I, it's completely... Like, this is a guy who's not... who's not. He doesn't care about anything other than himself. Yeah, there's himself, no redemption. There's just, no coming back from that. Yeah, yeah, he's burned from what, my... From what my about side. this, Barrio? What about the person like that, who just throws it without a care in a world, versus someone who does think twice and then decides to throw what's worse well when the, that person thinks twice does it does he have a good reason like something is there a good that, reason he to, just uh, said like oh i know there's no bins around here let's just let's just get rid of this stuff right now who cares no one will find out he's looking around to check out who's looking at this him. is this is horrible <laughs> it is horrible i'm i'm totally with you i hate to see when people do it on the streets but i i really 
never do anything about it. Like I don't have the guts to, to tell them I've like I saw them littering. But when I'm driving my car and someone's like throwing stuff out of their window, <laughs> I always blow my horn at them. Like I feel protected, obviously. And <laughs> if I can drive up to them, I'll give them a face and I'll feel good about myself. It's something about being in a car. Yeah. Your car is your castle. Yeah. You just need cannons from your castle. <laughs> Um, and, and then I then I feel like I've done something about it. You're solving the issues <laughs> and on one beep at a time. Yeah, yeah. Such an activist. <laughs> Here's what I call the hill I'm willing to die on. It's called, I don't think the movie can be better than the book, open parenthesis, except for The Prestige, which was done really well, I think. <laughs> I'll recognize that when you translate uh, a story from one medium to another it has to be adapted and changes have to be made and certain details have to be moved around and not all of the storylines can be fully told because of time constraints and i'll also grant it's a subjective thing and you know it's just an opinion but here's what i think the the, the most important thing i think is that nothing beats your imagination you know nothing even gets mm. close to your imagination like when you're reading a book and you're seeing the story kind of play out in your mind's eyes, then when things aren't exactly clear and details aren't provided, your imagination fills in those gaps in a way that is optimized for you, kind of, mm. and you hear the voices you want to hear, and you see the faces that you want to see, and you imagine the the the, the setting or the landscape or wherever the story takes place the, in a way that makes sense to you. A great example, I think, is is the Harry Potter books. Mm. Like, your imagination in the, with those books kind of has, has to work over time because, like, there's so many things there, you know, with all the magic stuff and all the magical items and stuff. You have to imagine so many things. And, I don't know, when they made those books into movies, someone's imagination had to be the one that you see on screen, which means that most people are going to see stuff that they imagined in a wholly different way. And... More likely than not, it just won't be as good as I imagined it. Uh, I don't know. I guess that some people care less about those things than me. But when I see stuff like that, I can't help but think, why even try? Like, you'll never be able to get this right for everyone. Another interesting example, I think, is Watchmen. The, the, the movie is extremely faithful to the comic it's based mm. on. And also the comic, unlike the Harry Potter books, it's, it's visual. It's, you, like, you can see the drawings. You don't have to use your imagination as much. Maybe there's less room for imagination to do its thing. But still, the movie reimagined the characters and scenes in a way that was often just a bit different than what I was expected. And it's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's often a bit distracting, like at the very least. And another thing, I think, is that when you take a story that is made for reading over a long period of time, usually, like, a book takes at least a few hours. Like a normal audiobook, a short even audiobook is like, what? six eight hours mm. and and when you adapt it to a two hour long movie it, it's it's very hard to keep the pacing right a lot of those movies feel like they're just rushing through the story mm. i don't know when i read books after i've seen the movies that they were adapted into i'm always surprised at how much details how much of the personality of the book was left out and there are movies based on books that are pretty good like the lord of the rings movies are great but i still feel like they left out a lot of layers that were very important and, and I'm not, like, talking about the... You've probably never heard of this, uh, Peter, but the, the Tom Bombadil scenes that were left out from the books uh, in the movies. But I'm talking about, like, a bunch of characters that I felt were kind of flattened to, to fit the time constraints of the movie. Like, it's not that they even take out storylines from, from the, the movie. I get that. But, like, main characters that were flattened 
because of time constraints, you know? And that makes the story thinner and weaker in comparison with the book. And those are great movies. I love those. But in comparison with the books, they're just a shadow of what the book, of the story of the book. Um, I don't know. I'm sure there are plenty of, of movies that were better than the book. Well, I gave the example of the, the Prestige, which I thought was a great adap- adaptation. And I love the book. But it had a few weird parts in it that were left out that I can totally see why. Still, I'm sure there are many, many examples of movies that are better than the books. In my experience, though, they're mostly the exception to the rule. What do you guys think? When you first said it, I was ready to defend. But I'm trying to think of examples where I like the movie better than the book. And they're hard to come by. The thing is, I don't know how many examples I'd have to list to make them not the exception. Yeah. I think it, it's more about the logic behind it, which I, I agree with, actually. But potentially, um, American Psycho, I think, was... Um, the book was great. Still haven't watched it. I think the movie is a notch above the book. And I actually really liked the book, but Christian Bale is, you know, one of the best actors around. And it's just, it's just an iconic movie, whereas it's not, to me, it's not an iconic book. So I, I'm happy, actually, to list that as an exception because I think Harry Potter is a good example, or at least one I can, you know, talk about because I've seen it, but you do lose a lot of detail. I guess you can tell a story a little bit quicker using visual elements and stuff, but the best books are written so, like, no page is wasted. And if they're written like that, it's very difficult to make a movie and do it justice. Mm, you have to totally change agree. so many things, simplify so many things. So, yeah, I, I do think it is difficult. I think the only time the the movie is going to be better than the book, really, is when they're not trying to portray the book in the movie. They're just using the inspiration. I totally agree. It's loosely based on the book. Say. Yeah, so it can be actually tightly based on the book, but they're trying to make it better than the book. You know what I mean? Like, like potentially, like, Forrest Gump could be an example of this. So there's the book... And they're not trying to just bring the book to the screen. They're saying, okay, here's this book. How do we make an awesome movie using like the stuff that's in this book? You know what I mean? It's like a slight different framing of it. It's more, um, you're just trying to make the best movie you can, but you have a book to reference rather than, you know, preserve the, all the elements of the book. I think trying to preserve the elements of the book actually is going to backfire. I, I think you're better off trying to do your own vision with the movie, I think that will work out better. Yeah. And I, I, I'll mention that I think... Like, I don't think that you shouldn't enjoy the movie. I, I mentioned the, the Lord of the Rings movies, and they're, mm. they're great. I really, really love them. Watch them, I don't know, at least a few times each. But at least for me, like, I'm thinking... Every time I see a, a, a movie based on a book, I'm always thinking, I, like, I could enjoy this a whole lot more with the book. Mm. So why even try make it into a movie? But if you're enjoying the movie... Uh, there's nothing wrong with that. I'm, I'm not trying to be a dick about this. And I know when I watched um, Watchmen, I was in the movie, I was still filling in some missing scenes or what you could deem as missing scenes yeah. with the information I had in the book. You know what I mean? Yeah. So like some of the stuff I didn't see in the movie, I was I was still filling in the gaps myself, which I couldn't do if I didn't read the book or yeah. read the comic. Yeah, and even even that was a very faithful... Uh, adaptation of a of the comic into a movie, and they kind of changed the ending. They had they felt like they had to change a few details 
I don't know. It's it's just not as good. Yeah. And another thing mm. with the Harry Potter films that kind of bugs me. There were like, well, eight movies, four different directors, I think. Maybe five or maybe three. I, I'm not exactly mm. sure. And that kind of makes each of the films feel different. Yeah. Like, I, I remember between the second and the third movie, there was a big jump uh, in terms mm. of feelings. It yeah, felt it was. totally darker. And then the fifth felt different again. And it's just not as consistent as the books. Kind of, uh, kind of annoying. Yeah, yeah. I yeah that's with... true. Actually, would you call this hill a bit steeper? My, mine is such an incline, though. I, I, I think it's. Oh, nah. <laughs> I think we'll skip it. No, no, no. We're not skipping this. Let's do this bitter. All right. Okay. Well, maybe it's not a hill I'm willing to die on, but it's a hill I'm willing to get like significant injuries on. <laughs> it's a very controversial take, but well, actually, I don't know because I don't think many people have many. I'm just going to say it. I think we should adopt all the children without homes before we create any new children. Whoa. <laughs> really? Yeah. Because I can see the counter argument, which is like, you know, that then it's like, and so many people want to have their own kids, yet then there's this like dependent variable of it depends how many, you know, orphans are out there. So I don't know. I just think it's like, that's not a luxury we can afford. I think we should, Like, it should just be like, if there's even one kid out there that doesn't have parents, then you should just have to adopt him before you make more kids. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? It's just like, I guess here's, here's my probably bias. I'll come out with it right now. Is that like, I don't really care. I don't, I don't really have much of a bias to have like a kid with my genes or yeah. anything like that. Like a kid's a kid to me. You know what I mean? Like it doesn't really bother me. And even saying that I know how little environment can have like that's what social well, that's what developmental psychology is telling us now that like you actually the most influence you have on your kid is basically the genes you gave him but or yeah. her oh yeah <laughs> it's a weird thing to be you know sexist about <laughs> not having a female child but anyway um so even then i just i don't care you know kids are kid like They're going to be different and you don't know how. So why does it matter who birthed it? You know what I mean? Like, that's yeah. kind of how I think. But then the other side of the coin is obviously like, you know, if there's one kid that's like, you know, in an orphanage that you could adopt, but then you create one, then it's just like, well, what's, what's the big difference? I think it's a controversial thought just because like, first of all, you'll never be able to pull this off. You'll never be able to convince as many people as you'd need to pull this off. Uh, there are so many reasons to be against this idea or maybe people aren't ready to accept this, but I'm, I'm totally with you and I'm not even in a relationship now, so it's like as far from me as it could be. But I always thought that maybe one day if I'm ready to have kids with, with a partner, then maybe I'd like to like look into adopting first before making a kid of my own. Like I, I, I totally think it's a noble cause. I totally think it's the right thing to do. And I wish we could pull this off, like adopt all of the kids before making new ones. <laughs> I'm with you. I'm with you on this. I'm willing to, to be injured on this hill as well. <laughs> so I'll take the other stand. I think raising a kid is, is so hard and you have so many ups and downs in the process that you, you really need to feel obligated to that kind of responsibility. And I think part of that feeling is, comes from the biology aspect or you know even if you just think that this is like part of you part of it is kind of like this is what will make you stay for for the long run I think I think that there's something very egoistic 
about uh, having kids, right? Like you're, it's it's kind of like creating something from yourself. Yeah. So taking mm. someone else's kid, I think it will just cause a lot of tragedies. Actually, I don't mind that defense. I think that with time, you can create the connection with the kid, even if it's not a biological, if it's not your biological kid. I think you can create like this deep connection but I see what you mean. You can create the deep connection if you want to, but I think that... There's less commitment, maybe. Yeah. Like, to start like with. Take, take, for example, how many, how many couples split up or divorce in comparison to how many families they decide that they don't want to be in touch with each other anymore. Obviously, you know, it's, it's, it's a whole different relationship, but I got to say that there's something with the uh, blood is thicker than water, Right. It's kind of like you don't choose family, and and that's, and I don't agree with that sentence in one hundred percent. But I think that the the main idea there is that you gotta stick around. You don't have any other choice. Wait, but I. Th- so yeah. you're saying that like if we'd adopt all of the kids, like wouldn't it be worth giving all of those kids a home that maybe isn't as stable and strong as like maybe some people would have with biological kids? Wouldn't the risk be worth it for giving all of those kids a home? Maybe it's a bad comparison, but imagine that when, if you want a dog, you're just going to get one in random, right? You don't get to pick. Like the the, the ability to choose your own dog, I think it's mm. important. It helps you connect to it. So now yeah. imagine the same thing, the same thing with a child. Yeah, but they're not just giving you, let's say they're not giving you a random child. They're not just throwing the kids away at families. They're trying to kind of find the fitting family for, for each kid. And honestly, just having a biological kid, isn't that kind of random as well? Like, you can't really predict how your child will be. I, I, I agree that the connection will be stronger to begin with, but I think it's worth the risk. I think that the fact that, like, everyone, everyone knows about adoption, but most people choose to bring a child of their own, that tells you everything. I think to um, almost agree with Barrier a little bit here is, like, Another thing to consider possibly is that for kids that are getting adopted, there is sort of like a filter. Like you have to be a pretty virtuous person to adopt. Yeah. I don't think you do, but like the evidence kind of shows that most people who are adopting are quite good. So there is almost like a positive filter there. Selection bias. yeah, Yeah. Like all the people who are adopting are probably good people to, you know, foster these these children, whereas if we didn't have that and people were forced to, potentially, one, like, people obviously might not care as much about the the adopted child than they would about a biological child, which isn't necessarily to say they're, like, bad people, but, like, biologically, like, our species wouldn't have really survived if that was what we did. But, you know, so it's hard to to get out of those um, patterns, but... I think that's a decent argument. The only thing is, the only problem with that is, at the moment, there's not enough people that would be adopting. Yeah. So you'd have to have, you'd have to figure out another way to get like that percentage up. So are you staying on your hill? Uh, yeah, no, I am staying on the hill. Here's here's another reason to stay on the hill is that if we did have this policy, right, all the adopted kids would be adopted pretty quickly. Mm. Like we we ma- we make so many kids that. It would only be like probably a year or so, and then there'd be zero people without a home. So then eventually you could lower that sort of thing to be like, you know, 
either one of your children, or if you're having multiple, like every, you can have one biological and then everything else has got to be adoption. Unless there's no kids ready to be adopted, then you have another one. So if you just want to have one child, then, you know, make your own or something like that. So like you could ratchet it down to that. And then after that, you could go back to a system. Like, because after that, I think many more people would be prepared to adopt. And then you could probably just go back to a voluntary system because there'd be people would have their minds changed on more of like a societal yeah. basis. But, you know, I'm still willing to hit, um, to die on the initial hill, I think. Yeah, I'm with you on this one. Uh, and because we're on the hill and Barrio's in the valley, we have the high ground Barrio. <laughs> Stop it, Anakin! <laughs> it's not a better, better impersonation. Thank you. <laughs> Even I got it, so it's not bad. Shakespeare, The World as Stage is a biography of William Shakespeare written by Bill Bryson, an author whose books I really like, published in 2007 as part of the Eminent Lives series of biographies by HarperCollins. Shakespeare is, I bet, one of the most recognizable names, which is why I was a bit surprised when I looked it up and saw that the whole book is only 199 pages. Like, I thought it was maybe too short. And to add to that, I'd say that there's a lot in these 199 pages that is only tangentially related to Shakespeare. And I, I think that Bill Bryson, he has a way of kind of showing the absurdity in the subject he writes about. And so I feel like this book repeatedly points at how, like despite the fact that Shakespeare is considered to be one of the greatest playwrights and poets in history, who's had a deep effect on culture and language, we don't really know too much about him. And what knowledge we do have is mostly... inconclusive or inconsistent. And this book discusses Shakespeare's life, who was born in 1564 in Stratford, England, and died in 1616 in Stratford, England. <laughs> and in between his birth and death, Shakespeare moved to London and became a successful poet, a very popular playwright and actor. If I remember correctly, he was very much appreciated in his time, His popularity slowly subsided after his death, and his works kind of became popular again somewhere in the 19th century. And since then, many researchers are trying to find out and verify every little detail about him as is possible. And the book basically goes through everything we know about Shakespeare's early years, about a few years in which his doings are mostly unknown, then about his years in London and his years in fame and his death. And... It then touches the popular belief, which claims that kind of Shakespeare was either a pseudonym used by a selection of other persons or maybe even a group of people. I think that this book does a great job in covering a lot in a few pages. Like in each of these chapters, Bryson tells us about like the agreed theory of where Shakespeare was at the time that's being discussed and what he did then. And then he touches upon all of the other possibilities and how they all kind of contradict each other. And I haven't read any of like any other Shakespeare biographies, but I kind of get the feeling that Bryson at least mentioned all of the important bits. Uh, so let me ask you guys, how did you guys enjoy the book? Did you read it or listen to the audiobook? Do you feel like you've learned a lot? How did you like Bryson's writing? So um, I listened to the audiobook and it was actually read by Bill Bryson, which is a nice touch. Uh, I really love his reading. Yeah. Like, I do generally prefer when the author reads their own audiobooks. However, I know a lot of authors um, are not narrated. Yeah. So, sometimes it isn't good. But usually, I'll take the trade-off. Like, I'll take a slightly worse narration for the author 
but this I didn't have that trade off. He's a he's a perf- he could narrate audiobooks from other authors. He's he's that good. So my general opinion is that it was absolutely fantastic. When I was jumping into it, I thought Shakespeare. Shakespeare. That's that old guy that wrote those things. <laughs> and look, Bill Bryson, I, I have um I've come across before and I've sort of never really got into his books too much. They're not bad. It's just like I know he has a few long books and really like scientific ones. And sometimes I just hit a snag and just get bored a little bit, you know. But this one was a short one and I was hooked like pretty early on. Honestly, I really liked it. It was um, very informative early on. So you get like more of the superficial details, I guess you could say, like where he was born, his movements or what they know of his movements, the plays, like when he when his career started, essentially events in his life to do with um, Elizabeth and her death and succession. And then he goes on more about sort of like the efforts which people have gone to to actually find details. So not just the details they found, but like details about the people finding them. Yeah. Sometimes there was nefarious things going on, like people forging Shakespeare's stuff. There was people ripping pages out of books. There was people that went through like the library of all like the legal documents for years and years looking for mentions of his name (laughs) yeah like it's quite amazing and even to think we've done all this research and yet we still will expect more things to show up like there's still so many copies of his works out there that we don't have so he even says i can't remember exactly what play but he says there's one that we don't have which could turn up so yeah um, it's amazing i think there's also a part where they talk about maybe some of his manuscripts are buried somewhere yeah i think he put a curse on it though so he says those who touch my bones will be cursed or something like that so <laughs> that's why i haven't gone into it i assume but and also you just don't want to dig up things for no reason but that's a possibility i'm not sure i'm not sure if i completely buy into that because at the time like when he died he wasn't like the Shakespeare we know like he he was much less of an enigma and more of just a poet that died you know like he's he was famous but it was like 18th century famous you know what I mean so I don't know if he was that egoistic or the people that buried him were that egoistic to bury him with his works but I could be proven wrong. Who knows? Now, if but. I remember correctly, he was famous, but like playwrights weren't considered to be like major celebrities or something. Like he was known, yeah. but he wasn't such a big deal, you know? Yeah. And additionally, I found like so interesting to do with um, how, how, like he had like 10% of quotations attributed to him in the Oxford book of quotations or some book of quotations, yeah. which I just thought was amazing. And I was skeptical and I was like, oh, it's going to be all these esoteric like sayings and stuff like that but like they're absolutely not they're ones we use every single day he came up with i i just i'm just so gobsmacked that all of it was him he was the first one to say gobsmacked no maybe not i'm kidding yeah (laughs) well i I just fell for that but um (laughs) you know now is the winter of our discontent like brevity is the soul of wit like all of these things you know is like I just cannot believe, like, I just assumed people have been saying that for ages. Like, obviously, if I, I've never really thought it through, but, like, I didn't know so much would be attributed to one person. And, like, the, the amount of words he created as well, like, there were plays where he was creating hundreds of words. Like, 
hundreds of words. I just cannot believe that. You know what I mean? Like, and they're not, again, they're not esoteric words. They're like common words. Like if I Google Shakespeare words he invented, right? What does it come up with? Bandit, critic, dwindle, lonely, lackluster. Lonely. <laughs> we didn't use the word lonely or lackluster <laughs> before Shakespeare. Can you believe that? I can't. Yeah, there's a bunch of expression, like Sterner stuff is from him. There's, I haven't slept one wink is from him. It's amazing. Did we have like eight words before he was yeah. around? Like, <laughs> you know, I just cannot believe. Like, he, he contributed so much to expression. Yeah, as soon as I heard that bit, I called my friend and I'm like, because he knows a little bit more about Shakespeare or just things in general. And I was like, can you believe it? He's like, yeah, pretty amazing. <laughs> I'm like, pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. No, it, like, it's really pretty amazing. <laughs> so, you know, you get like served in the first five minutes when you go into a restaurant. That's pretty amazing. This is, this is amazing. This is, this is, this is incredible. Yeah, it's you know? mind blowing. <laughs> It is mind-blowing. Yeah. He probably created that word, so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, in terms of Bill Bryson's efforts, like, fantastic. Like, it was. I thought the writing was very good, although hearing it is different to reading it, so I'm interested to see what you think. But obviously, when someone reads their own stuff, it sounds more natural. But I thought it came off the tongue really well from him. It was sort of like his, his voice is very calming. Like, it was... It was read almost like sort of like a not a fiction book but maybe like a more of like a mythic tale when he was describing like the uncertainty of where he was like it was it was very sort of mythic you know like it it felt very sort of detective almost like like not a not a crime novel but definitely some mystery aspect yeah. to it and I, I really liked that. I thought that was good. So, yeah, like, honestly, like a 10 out of 10. I thought it was just fantastic. Like, I haven't read anything more from Shakespeare himself. Like, I don't know if I will. I, I imagine I will, but maybe not straight away. But I, I'm definitely, like, in five hours, I went from not really knowing anything about Shakespeare to... It's weird to say you're a fan of this guy who created so many things, but like, I guess I'm a fan now. Like, you know, I gotta say that I didn't much enjoy that book. If I had to to summarize it in in kind of like one sentence, it would be a collection of semi-interesting anecdotes regarding Shakespeare, because it keeps jumping from from really small and smart uh, happenings including a lot of people that we don't that I personally didn't have a clue who they are and I didn't know how much we don't know about Shakespeare that actually took me by surprise so in that way it was interesting to hear how they gathered a lot of those anecdotes together but as I don't know like like an exploration book regarding the life of Shakespeare I I didn't really connect it to it. And I kept thinking maybe if I would have read more of Shakespeare's work, maybe then it would have said something. Peter, are you did you did you read anything? No, I I can imagine myself getting into it, but I figure I don't know, he does say it's much easier to get in if you were there at the time, you know what I mean? Like because a lot of the words now would be pretty dated, but I think I will just for 
historical reference. I would like to read at least one. I think the one I probably will read is The Comedy of Errors. I just like the title quite a bit. <laughs> but yeah, I think I will. But I don't expect big things, which is probably a mistake. But if there's ever like a Shakespeare play in Perth, which there absolutely will be, I'll definitely go to see that. That's something I would have absolutely never have done a couple of weeks ago. And now, like, I'm on the lookout, you know? That's amazing, yeah, man. that is awesome. I guess that's, again, like, part of the goals of what we do here is kind of, like, expand our man, our minds. Yeah. And, and I'll join you on that. Like, I think that if I'll see an opportunity to go and see play... I don't think I've ever seen a play. Like, I read one of his plays... And I definitely saw a couple of movies that are based. Yeah, there are plenty. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, but but definitely like seeing seeing one live is probably interesting. And did you hear the um, the Bill Bryson interview at the end of the audiobook? Yeah, I did listen to that. Yeah. Yeah, I enjoyed it actually. And one of the things that he's saying there is that he's still trying to be amusing and he's trying to find his comedy. And it's amazing that this guy like wrote things hundreds of years ago. And they're still funny today. Yeah. So that's that's something definitely worth exploring. For me, it was one of those books. I enjoyed the little stories across it, but I didn't really get excited about the overall journey. At the end, it's, uh, I don't know, it didn't really click for me. Well, I started by listening to the audiobook. And like the minute I clicked play, I got really excited about it because like I, I already listened to a few of Bill Bryson's audiobooks. And like I recognized his voice immediately and I remembered how much I enjoyed his other readings of books. So I really, really got excited. And after listening to like, I think the first chapter, I stopped and I went back to the beginning because I remembered how much I like highlighting and taking notes. So I, I started reading the book again on my Kindle while listening to the audiobook. And all in all, I, I thought the book was pretty good. Like, reading about Shakespeare was really interesting. It's always fun to see how the best of the best in a field kind of live and work. And obviously, here we didn't get a really close look. Like, we don't really know exactly how old Willie lived his life. But you get hints and clues from whatever we do know about him. And it paints an interesting, though vague, picture. The way I got it, it seems that Shakespeare didn't stop writing for a second. Like, he kept putting out new material as if he had a need to write and it felt as if he didn't take the time to make sure that everything in his writing is perfect and mistake free he just kept writing and performing and writing and performing and it also seems like he knew he was very highly regarded but he didn't make an effort himself to print high quality copies of his plays like once he was done with a play he just put it behind him and moved on that's at least how i got it and I still never read anything by Shakespeare, really. But from this book, it seems that he was a master of like evoking a feeling with his words and not a master of storytelling, which sounds interesting to me. Like I tried to think about which I prefer. I thought about Stephen King as kind of the other end of that scale, because I think Stephen King is kind of the exact opposite. I don't like his way of writing. I don't like how his characters sound in books I've, re I've read. But I think that his stories are some of the best I've read in terms of crafting. So I'm still trying to think about that. And uh, that actually makes me want to read something by Shakespeare and see what I think. But then I think about how I probably won't understand his language. Like there were a few quotes in the book. And at least in those quotes, in each line, there was at least one or two words I just didn't get. It'll take me a long time to sit with a dictionary and kind of go through any of his works. 
I, I, I don't know. They'll probably just go over my head if I'll read them, like just give them a straight reading. I'll have to see if there are like simplified versions of his works or versions mm. that come with explanations or at least, you know, like pictures. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know. I'll mention that out of the few Bill Bryson books that I've read, this is probably my least favorite. Still, I, I really like this book, but comparing it to other Bill Bryson books, this is not the best one. Not sure about whether it's because of the subject matter or Bryson's writing, but I'll lean towards the former because while reading this, I did find myself thinking a few times about how much I like the writing. It has this dry, subtle wit to it. It points out the absurdity and stuff. I just love Bill Bryson's writing. He's very clear in terms of he he gives you a very good picture of the motives of the people yeah. in the mm-hmm. story very, very well. Like even when it's like to do with like overthrowing the queen or, you know, like the Catholicism or anything like that, like the characters that he introduces just willy nilly, he, he finds a way to give them personality and a sense of direction and, and motivation very, very quickly. You know, he, he, he's very good at summarizing people's journey in a very short way. He's very good at that. Yeah, I totally agree. I really enjoyed reading about, like, Shakespeare's life. I really enjoyed reading about England at the time and how people lived. Like, there was a mention of a recipe book from the time, which kind of indicates that they had they had a bunch of, like, very interesting, very colorful dishes, like as many as we have today, I think he says, which is an interesting thing to say about those days because you kind of imagine them to only have, like, gray kind of dishes like gruel i thought they just had gray sludge yeah that's <laughs> how you kind of imagine it <laughs> uh as a whole i thought the book was fun i thought it was cute not the best thing i ever read but i really really like the writing i like the subject as a whole i'm happy we've read this book i think we have three different opinions yeah interesting finally some some spice and pepper I, i'm in the middle i'm kind of neutral in between you guys uh a, ni- a nice Very place surprising, in the middle none. yeah <laughs> so the the book kind of keeps pointing out how little we know about william shakespeare and how absurd it is like uh, there's a quote I think it's from very early on in the book. Bryson says, um, the paradoxical consequences is that we all recognize a likeness of Shakespeare the instant we see one, and yet we don't really know what he'll look like. It's like this with nearly every aspect of his life and character. He is at once the best known and least known of figures. Hmm. But then he, he kind of points out how absurd it is that we don't really know anything about it. But then he's talking about a guy called David Thomas, who's a senior archivist at the National Archives in England. He says, David Thomas is not in the least surprised that he is such a murky figure. The the documentation for William Shakespeare is exactly what you would expect of a person of his position from that time. It seems like a dearth only because we are so intensely interested in him. Like, in fact, we know more about Shakespeare than about almost any other dramatist of his age. Uh, it's fun to think about Shakespeare. He was such a great and influential figure that people are still trying to figure out any little detail about him that they can, and yet so little is known about him. You know, maybe there's a few days in his life where we can actually say where he was or what he was doing. Is Do you think, like, there's anyone like this today? Like, an artist that's so prolific and successful, but somehow manages to evade being documented? I think, actually, there is one person. I'm not sure if you've ever seen the documentary called Searching for Sugar Man, but he, he's relatively well-known now, but 
there's this guy called Sixto Rodriguez, and he um he made two albums in 1970 and 1971, mm. and they were very good albums. Like, I obviously it's subjective, but like listening to that, besides Bob Dylan and the Beatles, like they're comparable. And um, this was 1970 as well, so right in the time where they would have been popular. And I think he sold six copies in America. So, you know, and I'm sorry, did you say him and six? his mum? Yeah, six copies. So, <laughs> thought I heard you wrong. Um, and thought it cut out. Yeah, <laughs> six million or something. Um, but someone in one of those people that bought it in America, they brought it to South Africa, and in South Africa, it was big, like very big at the time. Like it just sh- huge. But the thing is, on the record, they didn't actually have details of who he was. And the, when they brought the um, the record over, people just like duplicated it and then the radios got it and everything like that. But no one knew where to send the royalties. And even the, the cover, like you couldn't actually tell who it was. And with no Google, no one actually knew who, who wrote it other than his name was Sixto Rodriguez. So that is one comparable figure where everyone knows the works, but no one knows the person. So... Huh. Um, but ironically, like he was performing in Australia in the seventies. So like there were parts of the world that knew him, but where he was most popular, they didn't know him. That's really interesting. I thought of, uh, maybe Banksy is maybe a comparable figure. Oh, do, yeah. you know, do you know about Banksy? Uh, not much. Yeah. But I, I don't know. I know enough either. to sort of know why you'd bring him up. Yeah. Anonymous artist, like a mm. guerrilla artist. I don't know how you, you'd is describe it. it is this like, something with graffiti? I think. Yeah, I think he did a bunch of graffiti stuff, a bunch of kind of like um, art galleries. I think there's a gallery in England with his stuff that he's made. But I think he's anonymous. I'm not, I think people aren't sure about whether he is a single person or a group of people. Well, he's a comparable figure I came up with, but I'm not sure if it's the same thing because he's trying to stay anonymous. Hmm. He's definitely famous like his work is definitely huge mm. i don't know you can maybe escape documentation if you're not extremely famous but there's a line like i think that shakespeare was way over after which you can't really hide like shakespeare today wouldn't have been able to to really hide i think you know people weren't documenting things because he wasn't like an interesting again i think the book mentions that playwrights just weren't interesting people back then but like today he wouldn't have been able to avoid it. Every little thing he would have done would have been documented, I think. Hmm. Maybe maybe not. I don't no, know. I think you're right. Uh, one of my favorite bits from the book was a, a bit you've mentioned, Peter. Uh, there's a bit where Bryson mentions that 230 plays survived from Shakespeare's time, hmm. uh, from the 16th and 17th century, and around 15% of those are Shakespeare's. Hmm. <laughs> he says that, because of the fact that we have so much of Shakespeare's writing today, we can see how much we we don't really know about that person. Like, here's a quote. He said, If we had only his comedies, we would think him a frothy soul. If we had just his sonnets, he would be a man of darkest passions. From a selection of his other works, we might think him uh, variously courtly, cerebral, metaphysical, melancholic, Machiavellian, neurotic, lighthearted, loving, and much more. Shakespeare was, of course, all of these things as a writer, but we hardly know what he was as a person. It kind of reminds me of the the Dunning-Kruger effect, the the effect that states that 
Mm-hmm. Like there's a point when you get to know something where you feel like you know it very well. And then as you continue learning about it, you realize how much there is to know about. I don't know. I find it very interesting. Like imagine having only part of his work available to us today and assuming he was a dark brooding soul and not being able to read like the comedies he wrote. It also kind of makes me think about other historical figures. Like, think of what we know about Marcus Aurelius from the Meditations book, mm-hmm. open parenthesis, covered in episode five of The Culture Quest, uh, close parenthesis. Um, like, we know him as a stoic, philosophical type guy, but maybe he wrote another diary filled with puns that we don't know about. <laughs> puns about pickles, cucumbers. Yeah, <laughs> cucumbers. <laughs> I would have read that. Yeah. <laughs> Turn it into a movie. <laughs> Another thing I found interesting is not only we know very little about Shakespeare, what we know is very loosely kind of based on fact. Like the way we imagine he looks is based on pieces of art mostly created years after he died by people who maybe haven't even met him. And the way we imagine like the theaters of the time is based on a drawing made by people who weren't even in London at the time or drew theaters that were built after Shakespeare's died. Like... There's so many assumptions made about him and how he lived his life. I, it's, it, this makes me appreciate the fact that we even have his plays today. But th- th- that is another thing. Like, we have his plays because two of his friends, uh, Henry Condell and John Hemmings, collected almost all of them and wrote the first folio after Shakespeare died. It had a different title when it came out. I don't remember what it was, but the book came to, to be known as the first folio. And... It's mentioned in the book, we don't exactly know how accurately Condell and Hemmings wrote down the, the, the plays. Uh, we're not even sure about the order in which they were written. Uh, I don't know. I wonder what else was lost during the process of collecting his work. Yeah. I, I do remember in the book that the order of the plays is something that was quite contentious. Like, there's been people that have just stated blankly the order and they've <laughs> yeah. been proven wrong in some way but people have been proven wrong but no one has really been proven right you know like you can find like a problem with someone else's order but they still have no idea like many plays wholesale that could just be in different orders so yeah i find that quite incredible as well but it very painstaking to go through and actually find all of these pieces of evidence from so far ago and put them together like they're essentially going through like parking tickets and stuff like that (laughs) and like trying to ascertain like where people were and stuff it's it's more like it is like being a detective but it's even more than that like they're they're analyzing like the handwriting to see how many different writers there were of different um plays and stuff it's it's absolutely like microfine how much detail we're going into yet we're going into so much detail to find things that are very basic to his life, you know what I mean? So, yeah. it's, it's quite amazing. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's crazy also to think about, like, you would never have this problem again. Probably right? not. Like, everyone, <laughs> mm. everyone who's creating something, he will be forever somewhere in the web. Well, you know what? It's not entirely true. Like, you, you can still choose to be anonymous, right? Yeah, you can mm. stay anonymous, but once you put something on the internet, it, it's there forever. Do you, do you think that there's still room for another Shakespeare in the future? Like someone in that magnitude? Well, actually, actually, you know, when I was reading the book or listening to the book, you know who I thought about a lot was the Beatles. I know um, Shakespeare was writing over 
more years. He, but um, there was a bit in the book where they said if he had died at the turn of the century and had only been a writer for um, or a poet or you know writer, I guess, yeah. for ten years, he still would have been one of the greats. You yeah. know. And that's how I feel a little bit like the Beatles from like 62 to 70, essentially. Like they just did all this work, like a mammoth amount of work. And then they just, they were good. They were set. You know, they were never, like history would never forget them. And yeah, yeah, I don't know. It kind of reminds me of the, of the same thing. Like it, they have almost like a bit of an enigma, enigma about them. You know, I think there are people like William Shakespeare in terms of how much they've contributed. I think a lot of people, like, not a lot, but there's definitely been some people who have contributed just well above their, what they were due to um, contribute, you know? Like, I think I think the Beatles is one. But... I think the Beatles is a good example, but, you know, even they, you know, became that popular before the information revolution, right? Yeah. Oh, that's true. That's true. You know, there's still obviously successful artists that uh, get recognition and they become something like this global phenomena. But it seems that we're in such a fast paced age that things swap with something newer all the time. And, and I think the Beatles is there as well. Well, Shakespeare, I'm, I'm, I'm more sure of. Shakespeare is probably forever, right? Mm. Like Beatles, you know, it's pretty much around our lifetime. So, you know, you can you can think that in ten or twenty years, not that many people will talk about the Beatles anymore. But hopefully, they will. But I'm not sure. Uh, but Shakespeare, definitely, right? What about if Elon Musk's um, plan to get us to Mars works? And in 10 years, there's like a colony on Mars. And then in 100 years, there's like a proper city, like a city that would be not indistinguishable from like... Elon Town. Musktopia. You know, something like like maybe a rural sort of American town, you know, like not skyscrapers, but something like that. Yeah, yeah, you're right. That's a good if, point. If, if he did that, I feel like he could potentially be like, like Shakespeare, like in a thousand years. Like, yeah. I, I feel like... When we talk about how we got, why there's two planets, well, we'll be like, oh, this guy called Elon, he created um, this, you know, this sort of civilization thing. I, I could imagine like, that happening. You're, you're completely right. It's a good example. But that's, that's actually maybe a good distinction between people who change our lives because they literally make this technological breakthrough and changed mm. our life forever. Their, their influence on, their, on our lives is much more practical than art. Yeah. The arts, like it's, I think it's much, probably much harder to get into that exclusive list of, of being remembered forever. Yeah, yeah. that's true. Yeah. I think that the, the last chapter might have been my favorite one. I don't know, it's like the whole book was really interesting. I think that the first chapter where he kind of covers the basics was really a good chapter to start with. But the, the last chapter, the one where he talks about the conspiracy theory that kind of Shakespeare wasn't a real person, which is a bit of information I'm sure everyone's come across at some point, I thought it was really interesting. Because the thing is that according to, to Shakespeare's uh, works, like you can see that he, was, he had to be very well learned in a few different fields. Like he knew a few languages. He was well-traveled. He knew about, I think they say... Uh, they mention law and medicine and, and all kinds of stuff that kind of doesn't exactly fit with Shakespeare's upbringing. And the book mentions a few theories as to who Shakespeare really was and how 
none none of those make sense and not only that it brings up proof from Shakespeare's time that he was indeed a real person I don't know, I loved this part of the book it, it shows how crazy some theories can be because some of those theories posit that some other person was the real author of Shakespeare's work even though there are events in the plays that are based on real life events that took place after those people who are presumably the authors of those works have already died like theories that just don't make any sense at all and still it's kind of like a popular idea it's kind of like misinformation that's still hanging around the first person to like theorize that Shakespeare wasn't who we think he is I, I, I don't remember I think her name was Delia Delia or and she was somehow named after Francis Bacon in a way uh, yeah I don't, I don't remember her name but like she had a theory that Francis Bacon was the person behind all of the Shakespeare and sonnets and poems and and plays and she wanted to prove it so she I don't know some, some guys sponsored her trip of three years to England I think she was American and she she went to England for three years she spent time like hanging around in places Francis Bacon lived or visited she didn't talk with anyone with no expert she didn't go to any library and she felt the the environment <laughs> I actually like that bit yeah <laughs> she sound she sounds fun I remember that <laughs> happening and I, the author was just saying like you know she felt like she could just like into it like when she yeah. went there she could just like sit in the park and be like yep definitely was him like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just love the idea but that's something that's totally something I would do yeah. <laughs> like you know like oh I can't tell if something was stolen uh let me just go in the room I'll be able to feel the energy yeah like, you know what I mean like <laughs> I just I just know you know like I just I love that confidence that's great yeah she she wrote a book like 200 years after the fact after Shakespeare and Francis Bacon died and her book literally based on nothing posited that Shakespeare didn't write all the stuff and Francis Bacon did based on nothing based she on nothing intuited it from and, first principles and the book <laughs> is known for making no sense at all but she started a wave of like I don't know there's like 50 different theories about how Shakespeare <laughs> wasn't a real person like literally the whole thing is based on nothing on her own feelings i i just thought it's it was a funny hero. story yeah <laughs> <laughs> I, i don't know out of all those chapters i think that was my least favorite really like, least favorite being like <laughs> all of them were favorites but that was that was least so but yeah like i, I don't know there's the conspiracy theory i feel like i don't know like it wasn't believable enough for me to get super invested in it like yeah. if it was like oh we still don't know but he was like pretty definitive like Even though he spelled his name like wrong every single time like everyone knows at the time who it was so like we're not really that confused about it but just as just a tangent here um, the spelling of words was just like just the fact that they misspelled words like there wasn't even really like misspelled it was more this like different spelling of words like uh, I'm forgetting it but he said like he he wrote one word. five different ways in five different lines that's just incredible to me the same person that would write the same word differently I think in the it was a simple word like is... take like once yeah he wrote it take tack taketh tacketh to I don't remember but like yeah. a very simple word <laughs> yeah like it it was pretty amazing to me like how he many different spellings I had even for his name like he didn't really care like it was like Willem Shakespeare or like will 
uh, Shakespeare or Shakespeare. Yeah, it's just like I don't know. Like maybe it just wasn't that important to them. Like, and I kind of like that as well because again, another tangent. But I feel like when I was learning English in high school, like there was such like a elitism about like English is like supposed to be this way. Like these rules are like set in stone and stuff like that. But <laughs> as you grow up, you realize that English is like changing all the time. There's new words being added all the time. Like just the way people talk, you know, like English is like a derivative of a derivative of a derivative. Like there's no like proper way to speak. Like there's proper English with a capital P, which is like the Queen's English, you know, but like I used to be someone that was like, oh, you know, you got to speak proper English. Everything else is like not good enough. But now I, I, not after this book, but this is years ago, but this book kind of like solidifies it. Is that like English is like, it's just a way to communicate. Like it's nothing special. It's, I, I think they do a lot of studies on like the way sort of like gangsters and stuff like that kind of like conjoin words and stuff. And essentially the assessment from like professional um, people in like linguistics is like their English is no less correct than the English I'm I'm using now. They're just as made up as anything else. And I'm not talking like made up, like everything's made up, but like, you know, that, that's just like another way to speak English. You know what I mean? Like, and if there was more people like that, I would be the gangster that doesn't know how to speak <laughs> English, you know, like yep. who's this guy like using all these weird long words, you know, like, um, it, it, it's, it's totally like just in the eye of the beholder, you know? Yeah. The correct so, language is literally just the, the most accepted language. <laughs> yeah. But, um, English teachers don't like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One of the interesting experiences that I had with this book is that it gave me some perspective and also proportion regarding some of what we as human beings do and experience because there's this one part where Bill Bryson says that definitely it was a very interesting time to live in when Shakespeare was alive. You know, like hearing in the book, the, they had uh, the different plagues and they had different, uh, you know, illnesses that they had quarantines, etc. Et yeah, and social and, distancing and everything like we're going through. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and it, was, it was amazing to hear about that. History is cyclical. Yeah. You're, you're... He, he also invented the word outbreak. Just saying. <laughs> Try to go the next week without using some of the words that Shakespeare invented. Let me just, let me just rattle off a few. Ready? Yeah. Useful. Oh, no, wow. that's a useful word. I can't do it. <laughs> <laughs> Traditional. That's, that's a bit difficult. Uh, let's go self-abuse. Let's go savage. Satisfying. Let's go overblown. I use that quite a bit. Invitation. I won't be able to go this next week without investment. <laughs> wow. Gust. Employment. Employer. East Indies. Expedience. <laughs> accessible. Amazement. Oh, just baseless. Can I, can I add a few more? <laughs> yeah, sure. Like he came up with... All of a sudden, he came up with swagger, with wear my heart upon my sleeve, with break the ice. It's it's such normal style, wild goose chase. Control, critical. It's amazing. stuff we, we say every day. Like and how did we how did we not use control? Yeah. Like how did they say control alt delete back then? <laughs> you mentioned that 
he started i think it became popular around 1592 so like in the span yeah. of 10 years of his career he already made enough to be you know history's greatest playwright but i think that like between 1590 and 1592 there was a plague that killed like four other major popular yeah. playwrights of the time that if like there wasn't a plague back then maybe he would would have been outshined by those uh playwrights yeah. like On the one hand, it feels like he was destined to be the greatest of all time. But on the other hand, it feels like such a fluke, like uh, such small changes to history would have made him completely anonymous, completely forgotten today. The book makes it feel like he was just destined, but so lucky to be who he is today. Mm. Maybe, maybe it's just Bill Bryson's writing because he does like to point out the absurdity in things he uses it a lot like as a writing tool. yeah uh, anything else you guys want to bring up only that his um name was spelled at least 80 ways <laughs> i can't even think about how to just spell something <laughs> 80 ways that's just incredible yeah i don't remember how many we have like a f- six or eight signatures surviving signatures that he literally like put down on paper mm-hmm. and Each time he signed his name, he signed it completely differently. And the way we spell his name today, he never signed his name that way. Like, <laughs> I, don't know, I found it very funny that he never wrote his name. Or maybe he did because he wrote his name differently every time. But we don't have evidence of him writing his name the way we write it today. Yeah, we've just kind of done an AI algorithm, put them all in one and then see what like the... Yeah, that's like the average averages. spelling of his name, yeah. <laughs> the yeah, median spelling. Yeah. Don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. For the mathematicians out there, I guess you'd average the amount of times each letter is used, and then you'd have to average out the average length of his name, and then average out the average order <laughs> of each letter, and then put together the average length in the average order with the average sort of frequency. <laughs> so I'm sure that's what they did. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, honestly, I had fun reading about Shakespeare. And as I mentioned, there was a lot of stuff written in this book about stuff around Shakespeare. So a few times I found myself feeling excited by the mention of Shakespeare's name in the book. I felt like, Oh, the good sparts coming. Like, you kind of forget that it's a book about Shakespeare at parts, I think. Mm. Which kind of sounds like maybe a bad thing about the book, but I know it, it might come off as the book was a bit messy and directionless, but I also did enjoy reading about this stuff around and surrounding Shakespeare. I do love Bryson's writing. I don't think it's for everyone, maybe, but I still feel like I could read anything he writes and find something I like about it. Like... I totally trust him. I'll read anything he writes. And l- lucky me, he's got a bunch of books. I'm not even halfway through his material. I think like I read four or five of his books now. And he's got at least double that. So I, I-, I don't know. I'm always up for a Bill Bryson book. I never, I never uh, interacted with, with Bill Bryson. But uh, definitely a good experience. Like I would, I would love to. Haven't you read A Walk in the Woods? Uh, no, no. I didn't. But you have a copy of that, I think. I think I returned it to you already. Mm, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So, you know, like, just getting acquainted with the with the author was, was great. Um, and the book, as I mentioned, didn't really get me. But I think, 
like probably worth recommending just you know getting a bit into Shakespeare beforehand or coming to it with some sort of uh, interest regarding Shakespeare because otherwise you're you know you're just reading about this random a lot of random people and it doesn't add up to something that you benefit from this is at least uh, my experience from it I'll just say if like you never had an interest in Shakespeare like me um, not deterred but just like didn't really get the fuss um, I'd give this a go I think if audiobooks for you I, I think this is probably a good one to pick probably and, the shortest um, audiobook I ever listened to yeah uh, and maybe just like turn off the lights and close your eyes and try to like imagine smoky Britain back in you know the 1600s because the imagery is quite good and I think to Barrio's point, like it can feel like a little bit of a book of facts if you don't associate it with the imagery. You sort of want to, you know, have like an image in your head about, you know, the globe burning down or him performing in front of King James. You you definitely want to have all those memories just in your head, you know, otherwise I don't think you'll get the full experience. But um, in terms of like, the the quality and the quantity like this you'll learn a lot like i know uh, probably at least like 40 percent of the book i won't remember the facts i I won't remember the order i won't remember the dates i won't remember the names so many other things that i've forgotten but what i get is <laughs> this is sounding very much like that person that just sat in the park trying <laughs> to intuit everything but i get a sense of what it was like you know what i mean like <laughs> And if someone asks me about it, I'm not going to try to remember the fact. I'm just going to imagine the time and figure out, like, is that plausible? Like, <laughs> I'm sounding so much like I it. also thought about it while, while reading that I'm not going to remember any of it. It's, it's just full of anecdotes that are very mm. specific. While yeah. listening to it, I was thinking, am I going to remember any of this when we'll, do, when we'll record? And definitely not. But you're right. Like, it's mostly about the general feeling of the of the time yeah yeah i yeah. honestly i i gave up on remembering like facts like probably a few years ago because <laughs> like i figure we have google if i ever need it but all i try to get is just a sense of the space that everything happened in you know what i mean like y- you kind of get a sense of people's motivations like when there was a plague and um, or when there was like the, I think it was mass like unemployment, there was poverty, they had like low wages, but then people still made it out to these expensive plays. Like that says something about the people. Like obviously there yeah. was still wealth inequality. There were still people that couldn't afford to eat and people that could afford to go to plays. You get the sense that life still went on. You know, like when they went into plague, it wasn't like everyone just died like there was still activities you know what i mean like it it, it gives a more of a colored picture you know yeah. like fills in some of the detail of what what it is like back then and it feels closer to looking back to something like the 70s now in my imagination than it does to looking back into like the 1600s like my my imagination of it is much more deep you know it, it i feel like i could actually imagine what sort of things they did back then and it's not as sort of old-timey as was as what I thought it was. So I think it's fantastic for that. Um, in terms of if you're already a Shakespeare fan, I think it would be great because there's so much depth. Like you're, you'll absolutely learn 50 new things 
like no doubt about it. You'll you'll love it. And um, finally, it's just short. Like it's, I mean, would I prefer it to be longer? Maybe a little bit. A couple more hours would have been good. But like, I think they're meant to be brief. You know, they're um, they're they're not meant to be super long in this series. And um, I think I think he did so well to do all of that in such a short amount of time. So, yeah, I love totally it. agree. Just before we go into the quick vote, um, I want to mention a few of other Bill Bryson books because I loved the the other books of him that I, r- I read. So if you're not interested in Shakespeare, you might find these interesting. There's, uh, I think he's probably the most famous book is A Walk in the Woods. Bill Bryson, you know, as uh, I think he was, I don't know, maybe in his 40s or 50s, just decided one day to pick up a bag and go do the Appalachian Trail in America without any preparations, really. There's a short history of nearly everything, which is, I think, a long, like, 600-pages book about the history of nearly everything. It starts from maybe the Big Bang, if I remember correctly, and it just discusses everything that happened until today. He has a book called In a Sunburned Country, which is a book about a road trip he had, I think, in Australia. He has a book called Notes from a Small Island about, I think, the time he lived in England, a book called I'm a Stranger Here Myself, Notes on Returning to America After 20 Years Away. Uh, he has a, a book called Neither Here Nor There, Travels in Europe. A book called The Mother Tongue, English and How It Got That Way. He has a book called The Body, A Guide for Occupants. Like, really interesting stuff. And it's very, very informative. Like, for example, in the a Walk in the Woods uh, book is not only talking about his experience in the Appalachian Trail and like the trip he took, every place he gets to, every every little town or mountain that he climbs, he talks about the history and er, anything we know about that stuff. And he takes things that you wouldn't find interesting and just makes them interesting. I really love those books. I think looking, for example, at The Body, A Guide for Occupants, like that's a book where I thought he was a little bit more sciencey than he probably was. And I probably wouldn't have been interested in that. Like it would just be very dry, very medicinal, you know. But um, after reading this, I think my next book will probably be The Body because I, I think he has such a uh, gift to put quick anecdotes in and sometimes not so quick, but, you know, to paint a good picture. And um, that would be great for a book that could yeah. be dry, you know. I really enjoyed The Body. I gave it five stars in Goodreads. Oh, great. Really, really enjoyed it. So, as we do at the end of each step of our quest, I should have read it in a Shakespearean kind of English, uh, we're going to take a vote <laughs> that will decide whether or not Shakespeare, the world of stage, has a place in the Culture Quest Essentials Guide, a.k.a. The Quig. We will vote with a gentlemanly tip of the hat for yay or an ominous stroke of the mustard for nay, and the vote must be unanimous in order for it to pass. Let's have a vote. Barry, do you want to go first? Well, Tippeth or yeah. Stryker. Well, you wa- you really want me to be first? <laughs> don't you want to create some suspense? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I, I guess <laughs> we should. Peter, do you want to voteth firsteth? Although, although I think it's going to be okay. You know what? I'll, I'll go. I'll start. I'm caressing my mustache. Uh, no, no, it's not. It's not caressing. It's not. It's yeah, not a good word. the book didn't work enough for you. Like, I don't think that people will read it out of the blue and and get excited about it. I don't think it's a cultural asset. It's nice. Obviously, there's some better preparation that probably should be done before reading it or getting the right motivation just to get to it. But uh, yeah, not part of the quig. I'm stroking my mustache as well. 
honestly. Like, if I didn't have any context for this book, I would definitely tip my hat for it. But because I've read other of Bill Barson's books, I, I think this one is a great book, but compared to other things he's done, it's just a little less good. So I'm, I'm stroking my mustache. You can write me down for a tip of the hat. It's absolutely a tip of the hat for me. I was hoping it would get in, but I... Really? I, yeah, I loved it. I thought it was great. And I think it's great for like... But when you remember cause... things from the Quag, you think it's, it's part of that? I think yeah. this book would go amazingly... Like, this book could have gone very well after reading uh, Last Chance to See. I think they have That's what a I'm very similar well. style. Interesting. Interesting. From my perspective, like, I went in as an absolute layman, like knowledge about and it now you're all. an expert and look at you yeah like I, i'd <laughs> love it so i kind of like a good case example you know like i guess if i'm repping it recommending it to someone who's equally as unknowledgeable as me then yeah. I, I don't know i can i can say well i wasn't like priming for this book you know i just got given it and given it, <laughs> it and um but, you know, it, I figure, like, um, if I can do it, then, well, it's not like if I can do it, but, you know, if it worked for me, I figure it worked for a lot of people. But um, I can agree, maybe it's not as grand as some things we have in the Quag, but when I think of the books we have in the Quag, and I don't, I think it would fit well, but, again, this is how the Quag works. You guys do the analysis, I vote for whether I like it, so <laughs> I'm happy with that. I think this book has a place like on the shelf right next to uh, Last Chance to See, which I think was one of the best books I ever read. So uh, honestly, just comparing this to, to other Bill Bryson's books, that's where the stroke of the mustache came from for me. Our next episode is our 50th episode. Ooh. Honestly, who would have thought that we would make it to 50 episodes? That's crazy. Yeah, it's really, really crazy. I honestly surprised we made it to 10 episodes back when we made it to 10 episodes. So 50. Ugh, that's amazing. Um, on our next episode, <laughs> thank you. On our next episode, we'll do something fun. We'll do something a bit different. And we're not exactly sure as of now about what it's going to be. Um, but it'll be worth checking in for. So thanketh thee, Peter, and thanketh thee, Barrio, for staying true to our goal. And thanketh thee, Harkers at home for helping us along the latest stage of our quest. We desire Yom thee joineth us again next episode, and we'll talketh to thee anon. Fare thee well. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Fare thee well. The Culture Quest Podcast is part of All the People Network. Visit our website at culturequestpodcast.com to contact us or see a list of our upcoming episodes. Follow us on Twitter at CQ underline podcast and tell your friends about us. Find out more information about All The People Network and the other podcasts it includes at allthepeoplenetwork.com. Thanks for listening to today's episode. I just wanted to bring to everyone's attention all those people that are currently stuck without their phone and are forced to continue listening to this unless they pause it and then have to contemplate, you know, the state of their life and other things. So you'll probably just continue listening. I just wanted to give a bit of a shout out to a, um, a website, actually. It's called givewell.org. So that's give, G-I-V-E, well, W-E, double L dot org. So it's, it's a dot org. So it's, it's legit. And, um, basically they're the authority on who is worth giving money to in terms of charity. So obviously we'll give 
money to friends and family if they fall on hard times. But if you are thinking about giving large sums of money to um, charities, it's definitely best to do your research because a lot of people just give away money and want to feel good, but it's also good to think of it as an investment and how you can do the most good. So, it's not asking you to give away more money, but it's asking you to give the money away in a responsible way. And um, basically, they've just authorized eight charities. So, out of all the, I want to say hundreds of thousands of charities, might be a bit lower, but they've authorized only eight. And I think it's really good to just scan through the list and um, see if you can consider donating to these charities. So, um, I think that would be good if we can all sort of band together during these tough times. At the moment, it's COVID, but, you know, that will change and we're all going to need to support everyone. So, this is probably one of the best evidence-based ways to do that. So, yeah. So, definitely hop on to givewell.org if you're considering and hopefully those charities are like tax deductible or something in your country, which would be in your best interest. So, anyway, this is not formal advice, but it's just a good place to go. Thank you. Graceful. Belongings. Exposure. Misquote. Monumental. Dwindle. Accommodation. Amazement. Majestic. Fortune teller. Useful. Lipfrog. Misquote. Accessible. Posture. Bump. Informal. Hot-blooded. Lament. Critical. To cater. Cheap. Mimic. Fairyland. Admirable, auspicious, to comply, indistinguishable.